But, but, but I mean, what's interesting, of course, here is that, you know, the, rather than it be a generational question, it's actually that, as we explored in the series, you know, generations end up just being vehicles for broader social transformation. So if you have much, you know, strongly growing inequality after the global financial crisis, the millennials just come to represent that greater inequality because they're they're passing through life at the time that that happens. So there's probably more, you know, there's probably less inequality between within the boomer cohort than within what we'll see with millennials, I suspect. Um, which I think is, you know, again, it's it, it's not that generation the generational question is somehow the motive force there. It's about capitalist economics, about class, and that just comes to be reflected in a, in in what the generational cohort passes through. But it doesn't mean it's millennials versus boomers. It's in fact, it's millennials. We'll see in the future is millennials versus millennials, right? I mean, in terms of um, questions of of wealth and income inequality. The war of all against all. No, but I guess the, yeah. So just, just one thing or a couple of kind of basic points to make here is that the, you know, the article does, does allude to it. This, the context of extremely low rates of, of home building. Um, and that's definitely the case in the UK as well. And it's like, yeah, I mean, all oh, this, it's going to supercharge the housing market. It's like, well, build some more homes. Like there is a, there is a solution uh, to this, which isn't just like being worried about the increasing house prices and what millennials are going to, going to do um yeah and i think this the second one is the, um, the there's a clear like this group is is now a constituency which is more up for grabs politically and in the uk you do see pretty generous like um um subsidies for for first time home buyers from the from millennial class like low deposits like there isn't there is a definite desire to make this group into part of the property owning democracy and um and lead them to uh to to the to the new revamped conservative party and away from the um away from the the um shadow of corbynism or the the threat of that so yeah i mean i guess my point is basically just like this if, if it does re- represent material trajectory or reality then there's a you know there if the if this group is up for grabs who is who is going to uh, represent them in the post-left populism context. I guess just one final question I had about this is whether this keeps the asset capitalism show on the road. You know, insofar as like how if it's a small if it's a narrower sliver of millennials who become homeowner homeowners than Gen X did and then Boomers did, then does politics need to pander as much to sustaining asset values in terms of homeownership as they did with with Boomers? I think that's an interesting kind of question to bear in mind. So this is by Gideon Rackman, who's the foreign affairs columnist, chief foreign affairs columnist for the Financial Times, and it was published on the 20th of December um, 2021. So it is, and the title of the piece is A Tale of Two Elites in Washington and Beijing. Um, So Gideon Rackman, I mean, he's not, the stable of kind of op-ed columnists in the Financial Times isn't great with the... um, uh, partial exception of Martin Wolf, um, and particularly since they've lost a couple en route over the last couple of years. But Gideon Rackman, you know, he kind of is a bellwether, I suppose, of um, of uh, mainstream liberal opinion on world affairs, and particularly because uh, part of his shtick is to digest the latest kind of foreign affairs article or the latest kind of um, you know Beltway style Chatham House report on whatever it is you know that might be happening, and in this case he is talking about um, 
what is gripping particularly America's political elite, which is to say that there is um, a sudden splurge of interest among American political scientists of the prospect of civil war in the States. And this is also kind of a theme which has been floating around in social media. Um, and it's in particular reference to um, an article published by um, a former uh, chair, a former kind of national securocrat who would publish these quadrennial defense reviews. And he's published something talking about civil war, as well as Barbara Walter from University of California is talking about uh, publishing a book called How Civil Wars Start. Um, I suppose the thing that's interesting about it is I think it's worth thinking about why the prospect of civil war in America two years from the next general election is now kind of reached that stage of um, public debate. Um, but I, I mean, I don't buy it for a moment. Um, I don't I mean, I, the sense that I don't think it's a, a likely outcome. Um, and rather, I see it much more as a as an effort to um you know, that it needs to be kind of folded into the debate to un be understood as part of the debate itself. So it's not just the warnings of civil war are a way of managing the political polarization that they're responding to by, um, I think, possibly, you know, preparing for a more authoritarian, more authoritarian response on the part of state power. And this, I think, was evident in um, and has been evident for a while in the demands, say, that white nationalist terrorists um, be seen as just as much of a threat as Islamist and jihadi terrorists, essentially to extend the war on terror even further. Um, that has essentially been the kind of the left, the bulk of the, the gravamen of the left criticism of the war on terror for a while now. And I think this discourse of um, is America on the brink of civil war is a way of perpetuating um, emergency politics, essentially. Um, and so I think that is the most interesting aspect of it. Um, and I'm sure it's something we'll be coming back to. Um, the fact, I mean, it's not to deny the reality of the degree of um, political kind of dysfunction of American, the core institutions of the American state, the lack of meaningful um, consensus on kind of fundamental questions. Um, at the same time, though, you know, you see all these polls which show that there is substantive consensus on all sorts of political um, questions, but that um, on identity-based questions, people polarize very sharply. Um, and the degree of suspicion and mutual recrimination is uh, significant. So um, it seems to me like it's rather than seeing it as a straight kind of academic read of the degree of um, polarization in American life, it has to be seen as part of an effort to justify and perpetuate um, emergency politics and that the, the elite that leading elite commentators are thinking in terms of the dangers of civil war is itself um, dangerous and threatening, I think. Yeah, I'd, I'd make, a, make a few points here. I, th I, I think I probably like there are some really important um, signs, not that a civil war is imminent, but that certain preconditions of a civil war situation in the US are fulfilled. And the, the major one of these is essentially that the um, elite sees its own lack of legitimacy and is fully prepared to turn against its own population. And that is, you know, it's not the only precondition for a civil war, obviously, but it is an important one. And I think it is, it is present like if you look at for example this you know a year ago 6th of january like capital building being stormed it's like this is um this is the level of or the ability for for the for american political class to respond in the way that it did 
shows that it must be completely um, divorced from like understanding what people actually think, like have no sense of perspective in terms of the threats that it faces. And that kind of like the ex- acceptance on the part of the elite of the breakdown of, of consensual modes of governance, like it could lead to, could lead in a number of different um, directions. But I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that I think these, um, these kind of like people who are writing books to, or start and how and how to stop them, which is the, the subtitle of that book, that they're not like they don't have their own um, interest in inflating the uh, the situation. Yeah, no, I mean I, the fact that, as Phil said in in, in his introducing the piece, that the scholarly discussion and the discussion of you know um, bureaucrat intellectuals is so similar to a lot of what you see on social media um, leads you to wonder whether they're not afflicted by the same hysteria. But I think, yeah, the, the kind of spectre of Bonapartism looms large here because it's interesting if you think of how... Sorry, what's, the, what's, what's that spectre? The spectre of Bonapartism um, in the sense that this, it, it, as Phil suggested, that this is would be laying the groundwork for some um, authoritarian move in light of, you know, some potential breakdown. Um, and I mean, it's interesting if you if you try to think of what that civil war would look like. If you even uh, even if you want to give a bit of credence to the idea um, that it would that you know the Republic, Republicans are twice as armed as Democrats are, so you think, well, there's only one winner there. But then you know, a, a real civil war would need a split amongst the elite, not just kind of um, warring factions amongst some sections of the populace, right? Um, and I, I don't know if that would actually happen, that there would actually be a split among the elite. Um, yeah, one... you need, but I mean, you need so much more. And also, yeah. Hey there, you've reached the end of a short excerpt from an episode that's been released only to our patrons. If you'd like to join us and gain access to around two Patreon-exclusive episodes a month, please go to patreon.com slash We'd love to have you.